The views, information, or opinions expressed during AOA broadcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the American Academy of Allergic Allergy, its employees, or members. The AOA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in and assumes no liability for any activities in connection with this broadcast. The primary purpose of this broadcast series is to educate and inform and does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. Advertising which is incorporated into, placed and associated with, or targeted toward the content of this product without express approval and acknowledgement of the AOA is forbidden. These broadcasts are available for private, non-commercial use only and may not be edited or modified from the original form or reproduced for distribution. So welcome and thank you for listening. This is Jennifer Vilwak. I'm an otolaryngologist, rhinologist, and surgeon allergist at the University of Kansas Medical Center. I'm joined today by Dr. Gavin Setson. Um, he is also an otolaryngologist, rhinologist, and allergist who practices in upstate New York. If you are not familiar with him, it's important to note that he's kind of pretty awesome. He has previously <laughs> um, been in multiple leadership positions. Um, that includes being the past president of the American Academy of Otolaryngology, head and neck surgery. He has chaired the board of governors and has also been the secretary treasurer for that same group. So Dr. Setson, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you and your background before we delve right into the interview. Thank you, Jennifer, and uh, appreciate the opportunity to participate here. So basically, I'm a private practice otolaryngologist. My passion and field of interest is rhinology and allergy, uh, as well as some endocrine surgery, etc. And born and trained uh, medical school-wise in South Africa and then emigrated to the U.S. and spent some time in general surgery before heading into otolaryngology during the course of my training was actually exposed to Arnold Rappaport, who was a past president of the American Academy of Otolaryngic Allergy and had no real strong interest or desire very early on to practice otolaryngic allergy. Um, but the more I was exposed to it and the more I realized that half to two-thirds of what we see and do and treat is allergy um, associated or mediated, developed a keen interest and um, decided to stay in Albany and um, took over his practice and have been very involved in otolaryngic allergy as part of my surgical practice uh, since that time. And it's been a, a particularly interesting and rewarding side of my practice as well. Yeah. So that's great. So kind of with that introduction, I'd be curious to know, how is it that you explain to trainees or even colleagues the importance of allergy in otolaryngology? And I think that that's the key message. Um, I think the emphasis over time has been towards enhanced exposure to allergy, whether it's on the in-service or boards or elsewhere. It, I think people recognize the importance. And I take every opportunity, whether it's with the otolaryngology residents, family practice residents, PAs, or medical students rotating through our practice, to explain to them that so much of primary care pulmonology, otolaryngology in particular, is allergy-mediated. And there's so much overlap uh, with the combined airway, dermatologic issues, chronic ear disease, uh, the larynx, etc., and sinonasal pathology in particular. And so uh, whether one realizes it or not, we're diagnosing and managing allergy-mediated 
otolaryngologic disease all day, every day in our clinics. And so to be able to formally incorporate that into one's diagnostic and therapeutic protocols, I think empowers the otolaryngologist, including the subspecialist, to be able to provide much more comprehensive and thorough care for that patient. So let's talk about that for a moment. When you say more comprehensive and thorough care, what do you notice perhaps in your practice or those within your practice who are, you know, fellows of the Academy of Otolaryngic Allergy and how they practice or treat different disease processes that maybe differentiate them from otolaryngologists who have not yet had that training? I think that's a great question. And I think for somebody who has the AAOA certification and has gone through the fellowship process, I think the way that we view patients and their complaints, their comprehensive evaluation and workup is a little different because we have more in terms of diagnostic tools but also therapeutic options for those patients beyond potentially a surgery which they may or may not need or pharmacotherapy. And so when I'm talking to a patient and I'm also interested in the family history, the atopic history, where they've failed other diagnostic or treatment options and have often been referred by other otolaryngologists to our practice or having failed other treatments, including surgery. We get plenty referrals from pulmonologists, the gastroenterologists, and I think because they are looking for someone who can provide that holistic diagnostic and treatment option for the patient. Patients prefer it, and patients will seek us out, and patients who are happy with that workup and treatment being so comprehensive will, by word of mouth, refer others and family members and bring referring physicians into the loop as well because they're not seeing four or five separate different diagnosticians or uh, testing facilities and so on. And that's what's unique, I believe, about otolaryngic allergy. We can do the diagnostic testing and we have a plethora of non-surgical and surgical treatment options for that patient and their family. 100% agree. I have a similar experience where sometimes as you're asking the more detailed history beyond just rhinologic symptoms, you'll have the patients that are like, oh yeah, I do also have X, Y, and Z. I've just never brought it up because everybody before has been so focused on these other things or some of the other things overshadow those issues, even though they're all connected. Absolutely. And, and if you're not practicing with the experience or training of the AAOA, you tend to limit your thinking, questioning, evaluation, and treatment of those patients because most snoring and sleep apnea patients have nasal issues which need to be addressed, and part of that is likely allergy. The chronic allergic rhinosinusitis patient with dermatologic issues and fungal sinusitis and various other aspects, you can offer somebody the plethora of diagnostic and treatment options without referring them then onto a dermatologist, a pulmonologist, a gastroenterologist, uh, immunologist, etc. And I think they very much appreciate that because 
most of those diagnostic tools are also in your office. And so you touched on it a little bit earlier. I'm just curious about how you started integrating allergy into your practice, although it sounds like it was kind of set up. So I guess another way to ask that question is how have you continued to see it thrive and make sure that it stays relevant and up to date? You know, I joined a solo private practitioner who did a fair amount of uh, rhinology and otology in addition to the allergy practice. And then when he retired, I was on my own in the practice and started to build the practice, including the ancillary services that support an allergy practice, um, diagnostics including uh, in-office CT, which we've been doing for about 15, 16 years, um, pulmonary function testing, forced exhaled nitric oxide testing. In addition to that, over time, uh, as the practice grew and uh, other physicians and uh, APPs were brought into the practice, uh, we now have, for example, a speech-language pathologist who works with us on the uh, chronic hoarseness and vocal cord dysfunction and other respiratory issues, in addition to being able to build out the practice with respect to ancillaries, diagnostics, and treatment options. And so I would say we perform all of the relevant diagnostic testing, obviously, including you know the skin testing modalities. Um, and with that, over time, evolve from subcutaneous immunotherapy to sublingual immunotherapy and have a very diverse patient population, pediatric and adult. Uh, obviously, many of them need surgery, but many patients, they're referring docs and family members, like to know that there is an alternative to surgery. What I also like to think is that those patients where we're treating an inflammatory process who, for example, have had revision uh, FES or three or four procedures, and then they come to you when you're managing the allergies, you really have an additional treatment armamentarium to ensure better long-term outcomes. And then I think today, with the evolution of biological therapy, that is just another natural addition to an otolaryngic surgery allergy practice to be able to comprehensively and completely manage those airway sinus polyp type patients. Great. And so I want to switch gears slightly and talk more about the nuts and bolts of practice. And of course, you know, there's different payer variations, regional variations, not only in how things get paid for, but just how diseases present. So I'm not asking you for a one-size-fits-all prescription. Um, But are there any things that really come to the forefront of your mind when we think about either economic or logistical pearls that are important not just for new practitioners, but also for established ones that can really make a difference in how you're rendering those services? And apropos your question, the way that my former partner became involved in allergy is he developed cataracts early on in his career and was concerned about not being able to operate. Had them fixed, everything turned out fine, but he saw allergy as another option in the event that surgery was not an option. So I think for residents and early graduates and fellows and those within the first few years of their practice, It's a very 
repeatable, safe, reliable practice option that can be easily implemented. Uh, certainly with the AAOA, the tools and uh, certification process is absolutely vital to that process, and that allows you to participate with the different insurers and so on. Um, but the logistics, there are many in the AAOA and within the otolaryngic allergy community who are great resources in terms of questions and concerns about either initiating a practice or practice building. What are the other options and alternatives? And there are some variations region to region and state to state and some regulatory aspects. But I think from a socioeconomic standpoint, one often has concerns about introducing something new into one's practice and uh, physicians tend to be slow adopters uh, in some cases. But I think in an era where reimbursement continues to decline, surgical procedure reimbursement will likely continue to decline. The whole site neutrality with HOPD versus office-based reimbursement and ambulatory surgery centers is another area of concern. And so there's always downward pressure on the economics of provision of healthcare. And um, in addition to providing wonderful diagnostic and treatment options to one's patients, it's actually a very excellent ancillary as it relates to the socioeconomics of providing the service. And I think in my practice and many others, it's a principal ancillary from that perspective as well. So I strongly encourage people to explore it as an option uh, to be able to provide so much more for patient care, but in an era where there is a lot of uncertainty and regulatory difficulty and so on, it's a wonderful ancillary to help shore up one's bottom line. Is there any way to predict ahead of time, you know, again, talking as someone who is relatively risk averse myself, right? Because you, you would need some amount of patient population, sure. right? So you'd have to look and see what your referral base is, what types of patients you're seeing now. Are there any general rules of thumb as to what you're going to need at the very beginning at a minimum to ensure that you're not going to be revenue negative? Certainly. And, and that's, that's one of the positive and favorable things about starting an otolaryngic allergy practice. To think of it as an ancillary in addition to your surgical and audiology and other practice, so you're not giving up anything else in doing that. Um, and one can certainly look at your CPT codes from the preceding 6 to 12 months and um, would be very surprised to see how many of those diagnoses actually have an allergic diathesis. And in so doing, there's always a concern that if I start doing allergy, the medical allergist will stop referring me patients. But the truth of the matter is, if you provide good surgical care, they don't have other alternatives. They will continue to send you their polyp patients and their nasal obstruction patients and surgical candidates and patients who need VCD evaluations and so on. And I think that should not be a deterrent. And because we see so many patients that we don't necessarily recognize we're diagnosing and treating an allergic condition, I think that patient base and that volume is in your practice already. Unless you have a particularly niche practice that um, excludes many of the 
Rhinologic or general otocodes, um, but so much of chronic ear disease, laryngology, you know, the, the dermatologic aspect of otolaryngology. I think developing the patient volume is much less risky than one might think. And then starting small. And as the practice grows from an allergic standpoint, enhancing the staff and offerings that one might uh, uh, provide to patients. Great. And as we finish up here, I'm curious to know, where do you think that we're headed as a specialty? So I think what we've seen over the years and what I anticipate in time is continued procedurally moving more to the office. I think that otolaryngology with our many subspecialties, unique and differentiates us from many of the other specialties, We're not easily regulated as it relates to payment models and alternative payment models and so on. And that's why, as a small specialty, we're not a big part of the healthcare spend. And so we'll continue, I think, for a time and uh, maybe for the foreseeable future, a blend of fee-for-service and other alternative payment models. I think in that kind of circumstance, we're well-positioned as general otolaryngologists and rhinologists, et cetera, to provide this allergy care. And then transitioning a lot of what we do into the office, where the pressure from CMS and others is to continually move to lower cost providing settings. We can do a lot of rhinology and allergy in the office and procedures like turbinate resection, septoplasty, endoscopic maxillary antrostomy, ethmoidectomy, cryoablation, other procedures that are out there for nasal valve repair and so on. And I've always been struck by how well patients do under local with minimal sedation in the office um, with respect to tolerance, comfort, lack of bleeding, and uh, favorable post-operative results. So I think we have a unique opportunity in our field to really take comprehensive charge of how we manage these patients, where we manage them, and the modalities that we can offer them. So I think we're somewhat less under the gun, if you will, compared to some of the other specialties, including particularly surgical specialties. Great. Well, any last parting thoughts? Well, for me, otolaryngic allergy as part of surgical rhinology and general otolaryngology has really been the passion and the highlight of the care that I have provided, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and the patient outcomes are really what speaks volumes. And so I just encourage people to consider this, to take the step, and I think from a personal satisfaction, professional patient experience as well, it's a very, very positive thing. And so I'm really grateful to the AAOA for the opportunities that they provide. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Setson. My pleasure. Thank you, Jen.